0: This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. The world awaits the release on December 3rd of the results of tests given to 15-year-old students by a program authorized by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development in Paris, an international agency. And the program is called the Program for International Student Assessment, or PISA, as it's better known. Every three years, students in over 80 countries participate in a worldwide administration of tests in math, reading, and science, and the results published one year later can have profound consequences for a country's educational system. Most notably, Germany suffered what is still called the PISA shock in 2000 when the country discovered that its 15-year-old students were trailing those in other European countries. So, pulling up their socks, the German schools witnessed notable gains on the PISA in the ensuing two decades. Now, In the United States, 15-year-olds scored every bit as low as the German students in 2000, but there has not been the same gains that the Germans have realized. The United States still ranks well below most of the world's industrialized nations in math and science, and no better than average in literacy. Well, I have with me today Andrea Schleicher, the Director of Education and Skills at the OECD and the person who is most responsible for creating and overseeing the PISA tests. And he's probably had the most profound impact on global education of any single public official. To honor his achievement, the University of Heidelberg named him an honorary professor in 2006 and. Professor Schleicher if I may call you that it is a privilege to have you with me on the education exchange today first I'd like to ask you how the United States uh, performed on the Pisa tests uh, but I can't do that because they're not coming out until December 3rd and I know that you have uh, prom- you have an obligation not to reveal that fact so I'm going to only talk with you about the Pisa tests up through 2015 mm-hmm. because that's now in information that's generally available. So let me give, begin with a, a global question, one that's widely debated in the United States, and that is, what's more important for student achievement? Is it the family background,
1: or is it the quality of the school that the child attends? We do see an impact of family background, particularly of the compounded family background in a school, the peer effect. But in fact, the most interesting finding is that students from similar social backgrounds can achieve very differently depending in the education systems in which they are. In 2012, you could see the 10% most disadvantaged 15-year-olds in Shanghai having similar achievement in mathematics than the 10% wealthiest American 15-year-olds, sort of having a similar social context, very different result across systems. So yes, Uh, social background is one of the drivers of outcomes, but it plays out very differently depending on the system in which you are. So is it the amount of money that's being
0: spent per pupil in the school? How important are these financial resources? That's a big debated question in the United States. Should we raise teacher salaries? That's going to cost a lot more money. How important are these financial factors?
1: Spending per student uh, matters quite a bit for countries that's spend, you know, up to $50,000 for between the ages of five and 15, low income countries. But once you get beyond that sp- threshold, the volume of spending isn't really associated with outcomes. The, uni- in the United States is well beyond the point uh, at which you would predict that better, more spending will yield better outcomes. But you raised a very interesting question, you know, teacher salaries, for example. That's exactly the point, the nature of spending is predictive for outcomes and what you can see for example high-performing education systems when they have to make choices between you know smaller class or a better teacher they go for the latter high-performing education systems prioritize spending in several ways first a lot of money goes into attracting great talent into teaching supporting teachers giving teachers sufficient time for other things in teaching and it's often paid for with a relatively larger class so total spending might not go up, but spending is prioritized on teachers. The second thing that you can see is many high-performing education systems have been very good in aligning resources with needs. You know, they basically try to attract the most talented teachers to the most challenging classrooms with you know, dif- differential career incentives or pay. They introduce formula-based funding where the money is tied to the kind of social context of students or schools. So I think that's a second factor where the nature of spending matters more than just the volume. Well, I
0: have to ask you this question. How does the United States do in this regard? Do we put more resources into making sure we get high-quality teachers or do we put more resources into getting smaller classes for teachers?
1: You know, the United States is an interesting case. You have actually quite high overall levels of spending and still teachers are paid quite poorly. You know, The relatively small classes have actually been very costly in terms of A, not freeing up money for attractive teacher salaries, and equally important, American teachers don't have nearly as much time for doing other important things than teaching in the classroom than uh, you would find in other countries. Well,
0: what could be more important than a teacher being in the classroom with the students? Isn't that what we expect of our teachers, is to be at work, engaged with students?
1: Absolutely. I think that's a very important part, but you would also want your teachers to learn for, you know, the next class, the next job, the next set of skills. So to have teachers who are engaged in professional practice, teachers who have time and resources to observe other teachers teaching is something that we find very important. So I think it's a matter of balance and uh, many high performing education systems would give their teachers more time to work with students outside the kind of classroom context. You know, in Finland. As a teacher, you devote about thirty percent of instruction time outside the classroom setting. So you you configure your students to you know foster talents and counter disadvantage. So there's a lot more flexibility in the system, and uh, teachers also spend more in professional learning communities. They um, work more to become effective designers of instructional policies, not just delivery of that. Uh, there's, in essence, in an in open debate. Like in, uh, in the United States, you know, as a teacher, you teach. Then you have a social worker and a school psych- psychologist. If you're in a Japanese classroom, you're all of this together. And it would be seen as important that teachers are there to take care of students, whatever their needs are, rather than, you know, just playing a little function. That's also what keeps teaching intellectually attractive. One of the things I would say about, you know, teaching in America, it's, financially not very attractive, but even less intellectually. And I think making teaching intellectually more attractive is a big driver of who becomes a teacher and how those people progress in their careers. So
0: you would keep all, as many teachers as now are in the teaching profession in the United States, but you would give them larger classes and a more free time to l- think about what they're doing and to learn from their colleagues.
1: Well, what I can say is that that is what most high-performing education systems, that's the choice that they would make. You know, basically, they don't see class size as very important. Uh, They have to make a choice between a better teacher and a smaller class. They really invest in in their teachers.
0: So are you saying that the teacher is the most important factor in a high school performance, that high-performing, Schools have excellent teachers who have the time to build on their skills and enhance them.
1: It's not the only factor, but what is clear is that the quality of education w- will rarely exceed the quality of teaching. So that is where you know education policy gets ultimately implemented. It gets implemented by people in the classroom. So I think teacher quality is particularly for the most disadvantaged students, and you know, I think the kind of educational experiences they have are are absolutely critical and that's another part of the story you know when you look at spending in the u.s you know almost every second dollar doesn't make it into the instructional system and that's a very kind of low share of resources that end up you know what could directly influence students where learning. where is the money going uh um, a lot of non-instructional costs whether it's <clears> infrastructure <throat> transportation lots of things that are actually not directly related to learning experiences of students uh, but that they are very costly ancillary services uh, th- these are the things where the US ranks very highly but other
0: from other countries will put a higher share of their resources into the teaching force in one way or another yeah now how about the disadvantaged population in the United States? As compared to other countries, as are more resources being put? We have a compensatory education program by the U.S. government. We have a lot of talk at the state level that they want to concentrate the resources on the
1: needy. How well does the United States compare to other countries in that respect? Well, I think still the United States is one of the few OECD systems where educational resources are still regressive, that is, you come from a privileged neighborhood, you're more likely not necessarily to get more teachers, but certainly the better qualified teachers. There's a very clear pattern that we can see from the PISA data that uh, the least qualified teachers often teach the students with the greatest needs, and I think that's neither equitable nor very productive. You know, If you think about it, if you come from a wealthy background, you probably have many open doors in life, and uh, teachers don't matter You know, that much. If you come from a disadvantaged background, you have just one card to play and that is you know great teacher and a great school and that's again, I think the US could do better to align its resources with the needs of children. and and as I said, you know most countries and that's perhaps the biggest development over the last 15 years the move towards formula- based funding rather than you know spreading out money equally or regressively, A deliberate kind of idea of how do we allocate resources to schools in some cases that's quite prescriptive In other cases if you go to the United Kingdom England schools are given block grants depending on their social environment and it's them who decide how to invest those resources.
0: So in the United States we have our neighborhood schools (coughs) and some neighborhoods are wealthy and some neighborhoods are poor Mm -hmm. and yet uh, the financing of the schools and uh, who's going to go to school is all going to be determined by the neighborhood is that mm. one of the driving forces of this inequality this regressive uh, allocation of resources that you see in the United States
1: I do think so I think a local based school finance which is uh, a rare exception worldwide not just in the, among the OECD countries um, is co- certainly one of the drivers but I think there are other factors at play as well like um, even you know within you know a neighborhood there is very little done to deliberately attract talent into difficult to walk schools. And I think that's something that characterizes many high-performing systems where career structures are managed at uh, much more deliberately. Well,
0: one of the things that we have in the United States is teacher unions who insist upon the rights of the senior teacher. Yes. A senior teacher can decide where they're going to work. We know that a beginning teacher is going to be less effective than a More experienced teacher, and the more experienced teachers are going to have more choices as to where they're going to be teaching, and they're sort of naturally going to gravitate to a setting where it's easier to teach, more satisfying to teach. So is that part of the problem?
1: Yeah, and that's exactly what I mean. I mean, that's where career management really comes into play, where actually the system could create incentives for great teachers to go to disadvantaged schools and this is not just about you know performance related pay or pay for you know teaching disadvantaged a lot has to do with the kind of support that you give to people working in those circumstances now making it again attractive to work in a difficult school that's what we see in uh, systems doing that really well and that's sort of if you just leave that to the market and uh, or even worse if you make sort of experience years of service a determinant for where you work you clearly end up with a regressive kind of model where the least experienced teachers the one who just come from you know teacher ed programs will end up in the school where nobody else wants to be and I think that is something that you know, in my view public policy can and has very successfully addressed in a number of countries if you look for example just to give you a number to this in Finland Only 5% of the performance variation lies between schools. The closest school is always the best school. That is a deliberate result of ensuring that the allocation of human resources uh, is serving the needs of the system.
0: So one of the uh, statements that you made today to a group of students here at uh, Harvard University Uh, was that uh, education is one of the most conservative institutions in our society and you compared it to other institutions. So uh, tell our listeners exactly what you meant by that.
1: Well, you know, uh, and I I think we we as, you know, parents are sometimes part of the problem and not the solution. You know, we get very... Anxious when children no longer learn what was very important for our lives, or when they do learn things that we no longer understand. And I think that's one of the, you know, we are, you know, trying to prepare them for a world that we know really well. Uh, when things have changed, teachers are sometimes teaching more like they were taught than how they were taught to teach, and modern kind of pedagogy and. Uh, for public policy I think it's also clearly visible you, we, I have seen ministers of education losing their job because something small going wrong uh, but um, you never win because if you do even the best things you're going to see your successors is going to see the fruit of this so I think that makes it really hard but I think the, the social conservatism is I think the biggest risk that we judge the education of tomorrow we are so much better to educate children for our past than for their future and um, uh, I think that's something which is very different if you go into the medical field you know we all want to be treated with the latest kind of technologies and by the most up to date surgeons for teachers is very hard we uh, they are being told you know teach for the future and then everything else is telling them teach for the past including our exam systems now the kind of assessment regimes accountability structures often prioritize you know, reliability over relevance, or you know, um, efficiency over validity. And I think again, that's a conservative force that uh, holds system back.
0: Well, uh, everybody wants the best school for their own child, and if you're going to change the best the system, that might help others, but is it going to help my child? Isn't that what is one of the drivers of this conservative philosophy when it comes to education?
1: Yeah, you know, I think what wise parents want for their children is what public policy should deliver for all children. I think that's the only answer. The more, the less variability, the more equitable an education system is, the less those kinds of dynamics play into this. The political economy of education has always been very hard, but I think the best that public policy can do is to create a level playing field that uh, minimizes those differences. Where differences in the quality arise, you have parents pushing for the best schools and the variability will just be reinforced. So I think, you know, again, attracting the most talented teachers to the most disadvantaged schools, ensuring that, you know, there is a a level playing field is I think really the best thing that that we can do to counter those kinds of tendencies
0: Well, some people say that the PISA tests unfairly compare the United States to other countries because we have more students uh, at age 15 still in school than other countries do, and uh, the sampling isn't well done uh, in in other countries, and so therefore they get a bias, and they, they look much better than they really are. And so we shouldn't take the PISA test so seriously. How do you respond to those critics that make that kind of claim?
1: Yeah, you know, I think uh, there are legitimate arguments, but I think issues around sampling I don't think are very valid. For example, the statement that, you know, there are more 15-year-old Americans in school than 15-year-olds in other countries just doesn't hold. In fact, there are fewer 15-year-olds enrolled in the United States than on average across OECD countries. It might have been different 20 years ago, but today, actually, education is more universal in most OECD countries than it is in the United States. Uh, Some people say, well, there's more child poverty in the United States. Even that, you know, once you put this on an absolute metric, the United States is one of the wealthiest, one of the richest countries with the kind of most educated parents. It actually has all the ingredients in terms of social and economic background for successful educational outcomes. Most of those arguments don't hold the issue about sampling. The uh, PISA surveys are done with a very rigorous Sampling methodology actually done by an American company, Westert here, very, very good at that. Uh, I think we can ensure that the results are metrically comparable. Whether they are fair, you know, you can argue that the piece of test is, um, you know, to what extent it matches a specific instructional system. There are good arguments to make, but I don't think you can make any argument that, you know, the selection of students or the coverage of the population favors other countries. I would rather say it favors the United States. Well, thinking
0: worldwide, is there any signs of convergence between the developing world and the developed world? Do we see some hope that we're going to have a common worldwide population in terms of educational accomplishment? Do you see anything in your data that points in that direction, or are these gaps between... The first world and the third world, to
1: use the old phrase, uh, are they still there? Well, you know, I think you no longer can divide the world between rich and well-educated nations and poor and badly educated ones. You you can think of a country like Vietnam that is still economically poor, but it's developing a world-class education system, or parts of China. Uh, you know, Singapore, Korea, a good example, you know, Korea in the 1960s at the level of economic development of Afghanistan today. And it's one of the least developed education systems. has moved upward. I think in the past, money was a huge barrier. You know, if you were not rich, you couldn't have a good education system. Today, actually, countries that make that a priority have it shifted. Now, does it say that there will be convergence? I'm not sure because we have, you know, some wealthy countries that are not making education a priority and some poor countries that don't. So I think we see just more variability. But less of that variability is accounted for by just national income. That's what makes me optimistic. I think if a country wants to have a first-class education system, whether rich or poor, it's an achievable goal.
0: Well, another question that uh, comes up when you look at the PISA data is that Canada seems to do so much better than the United States, and I always sort of think, well, what is the difference between Canada and the United States? Is there anything in your data that sheds light on that simple little question?
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, there are some areas in the student responses. You can see that uh, uh, achievement expectations as perceived by students are consistently higher in Canada. Sort of students feeling that teachers expect a lot of them. They also express a very high level of teacher support. So, not just, you know, I'm expected to do a lot, but I can count on my teachers. That's one thing. Canada is certainly doing very well on all equity related aspects. For example, students with an immigrant background uh, are delivering remarkable results. Social disadvantage doesn't play out as strongly, I think. Canada has very effective policies in place to align resources with needs. Um, Yeah, there are many interesting. Canada, I think, is a great example because some people say, well, you know, we can't be like, you know, Japan or or Singapore. But certainly most of the things that have made Canada successful uh, could be replicated in the United States, including school financing. You know, Canada actually, when you look at the state of Ontario, had a similar locally-based school financing model. And has actually adjusted this to ensure that schools have similar or more equitable resources. So actually, I think it's a lot of interesting lessons from Canada. The stakeholder relationships. You know, you mentioned earlier. You know, opposition from unions. Uh, well, that used to be quite similar in many of the in, in states like Alberta or in you know Ontario, and they have actually changed that nature between unions and government, the nature of that relationship. So I think there are lots of interesting lessons from Canada. Well, finally, let me
0: ask you what you take the greatest uh, uh, pleasure in over the past uh, 20 years in uh, witnessing this transformation of uh, the program for international student assessment. Where has it had the biggest impact? Can you, can you identify a couple of places in the world where you really think it's made a, a big difference?
1: Yeah, I think generally, you know, education used to be a very kind of domestic or local field of public policy, and that has changed. I think there is now a, a global conversation around education on, you know, the question of what students should be learning, what are the most effective ways of educating children. We have that dialogue among researchers, among policymakers, uh that is really something that encourages me a lot because in other places we take that for granted you know if you would you know invent something new in a medical field the world will know about it tomorrow and people will you know benefit from this in education many of the good practices rest in four walls of a classroom and i think what Pisa has done is it helped people you know look outward not just upward and uh i think we have We attribute less to culture and context than we did in the past. We understand that culture is often not just inherited but created by what we do. We understand those kinds of policies. And I think we have a very, very different conversation. Whether we learn the right things, that's still an open question. But at least we have now a much better way to compare, contrast, and see what's possible in education now. Well, I've been speaking uh, with
0: Andreas Schleicher, Director of Education and Skills uh, for the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development located in Paris. The organization is responsible for the PISA tests that are to be released on December 3rd in 2019, uh, just a couple, three weeks uh, from today uh, when we're having this conversation. So thank you, Mr. Schleicher, for joining me on the Education Exchange.
1: Thank you, Paul, for hosting
0: I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.